Hey, let's, uh, let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark this morning. That sounds good, doesn't it? Gospel of Mark. After spending 14 months in the book of Acts, it is uh, immensely satisfying to say open your Bibles to the book of Mark. Mark, uh, as we're going to discover, it is, uh, it's a wonderful book. It is a book of action and a book of purpose. Uh, I don't know if you remember the story, but on July 2nd, 1982, a man by the name of Larry Walters, a.k.a. Lawn Chair Larry, uh, a 33-year-old man from San Pedro, a truck driver, he went down to the local Army surplus store and he bought 45 used weather balloons And he filled the balloons with helium and tied them to a chair. He strapped himself in and his friends there helping him. And he took along a six-pack of beer, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and a BB gun, figuring that he would shoot the balloons one at a time when he was ready to land. And Larry's expectations was that as they untied him, that the balloon would go up about 30 feet into the air. And he was caught off guard when the chair shot straight up over three miles into the sky, smack into the middle of the air traffic pattern at Long Beach Airport. Larry was too freaked out to uh, shoot any of the balloons. He was afraid that if he shot them that uh, he'd plunge to his death. And so he stayed airborne for more than two hours, forcing the airport to shut its runways down for much of the afternoon. Caused long delays in flights that were coming from across the country. And he finally landed safely. And as you can imagine, he was promptly arrested by the police and swarmed by reporters who managed to ask him these three questions before he was hauled off. Number one, Larry, were you scared? His answer, yes. Uh, I think my answer would have been, duh, but uh, anyway. Second question, Larry, would you do it again? No way. No, I would not do it again. And his third question, the money question, why did you do it? Listen to Larry's response. He said, because a man just can't sit around. (laughs) I love that spirit. And you know, the thing is, that's the spirit of the gospel of Mark. Not the six-pack of beer, not the BB gun. The spirit of the gospel of Mark is this attitude that you can't just sit around. The Gospel of Mark is a book of action. In fact, notice the opening phrase here in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, It says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning, that word, beginning, it's a very interesting word in the Greek when you study it. Literally, it means of the corners of a sail. And what that means, the idea here, is that there's many places to begin a story. Think about the corners of a sail. You can start at any one of those corners. As a matter of fact, you guys know, the Gospel of Mark is one of four Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of those represents a corner of this sail that we set the course of our lives to. And you can start the message of the Gospel from any one of those corners. Matthew focuses on Jesus, uh, the sovereign king. And as uh, that being the focus, that he's the sovereign king, the the focus of the gospel of Matthew is on Christ's genealogy, on his pedigree. He He is a king, and so they concentrate as they begin, as Matthew begins his gospel, on, on his pedigree. This is, this is who he was, and this is where he came from. This is his family line, and so on. 
Luke, his gospel, the focus there uh, is on Jesus, the Son of Man. And so Luke's gospel starts with Jesus' earthly conception in his birth. That's the starting place there. The gospel of John focuses on Jesus, the Son of God. And so the gospel of John begins in heaven. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the beginning of John's gospel. Well, here in Mark's gospel, the focus is on Jesus, the servant of God. And so as we begin the book of Mark, uh, he gets right to work. And so for this reason, as you'll discover as we go through the book of Mark, that it's a very busy book. In this gospel, Jesus is moving from one event to another very quickly. As a matter of fact, one of the words that we see most often used here is the word immediately. It occurs over 40 times in the gospel, and it's just speaking about the immediacy, the urgency in which Christ worked in in his moving from one event to another. We see Jesus as a servant busily meeting the needs of his people uh, and busy being God's Messiah. And so, as I said, the emphasis in Mark is on more on the work of Jesus than it is on uh, the word of Jesus, if I can say that. The ancient manuscripts give us the title for this book. Uh, the Greek, the simple title is uh, Keda Markon, and it literally means according to Mark. So let's investigate here who was Mark? Who is this guy who wrote this gospel? Well, you may recall... Uh, Sorry to bring it up after 14 months, but in the book of Acts, we first met uh, this man, Mark. We're told there that his name was John Mark. He was the son of a woman named Mary. Uh, Mary, you may recall, we met her in Acts chapter 12. Uh, Mary opened up her home as a gathering place for the early church. You remember when Peter got thrown in jail and the church gathered together and they were praying for Peter's release. And the Lord miraculously delivered Peter from prison. And he came and knocked on the door and and Mary's servant girl opened up the door and freaked out, slammed the door in Peter's face, goes running back in. Peter's here. There they are. They're praying for Peter. Lord, let's set him free. Set him free. This girl comes running. Hey, Peter's free. And they're like, you're nuts. You're whacked up. (laughs) You know, here they're praying for it. Yeah, I'm telling you, Peter's there. They go, they go to the door. Peter's still like, hello, come on, what's going on? They let him in. That's Mary's house. This is, this is John Mark's mom, Mary, this wealthy woman who used her home as a gathering place for the church. We also, in the book of Acts, we met John Mark's uncle. This was a guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph means exalted, and this man certainly was. He was himself a wealthy man. And we met him first in Acts chapter 4, where he sold a possession, he sold a property. And he brought the proceeds of that property, and he laid them at the apostles' feet. And uh, the nickname that the apostles gave him, we're told there in Acts chapter 4, is Barnabas. Barnabas being the son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. And this man definitely was a man who was filled with encouragement, not only in the fact that he would use his material resources to encourage the work of the church, but he would put himself on the line many times to encourage people. We're told in scripture that it was Barnabas who went and sought out Paul the Apostle Paul, and brought him back and said, hey, there's a work to be done. Come on, let, let's go, Paul. This is, this is John Mark's uh, uh, um, uncle uh, who went and got the Apostle Paul. We, we discover there in the book of Acts in 
in uh, Acts chapter 13 that the Holy Spirit called Barnabas and Paul out of the church of Antioch. The Spirit said, separate unto me Barnabas and Paul for the work that I have called them to. And so these two men, they're in Acts chapter 13, they go out to serve the Lord on the mission field, and the text tells us that they brought Mark with them. And you remember that as they went out, they went through the island of Cyprus, <clears throat> they went on uh, from uh, sailing from Cyprus uh, into the region of Galatia. We remember that the Gauls uh, that were the the people of this area they were a nomadic people. They were uh, they were kind of a scary bunch. Uh, and so Barnabas and Paul and Mark they're going into the hood uh, and they're ministering. And Barnabas got very sick. Uh, he was uh, stricken, most uh, commentators think he was stricken at that time with a malaria that's kind of unique to that region. And there, while Barnabas was so ill, uh, this was that time when, uh, uh, when John Mark just sort of freaked out. He lost his nerve. He became uh, a little, uh, just a little uh, unsettled, a little unsure. And he abandoned them. He, there, at that time, that's when he left the Apostle Paul, uh, in this region of Galatia. He ran, run, the text tells us he went back home to Jerusalem, running home to Mama, uh, and, uh, and Paul was fed up with him. As a matter of fact, later on, in, in Acts chapter 15, we see that Paul, again, is getting ready to go out on now his second missionary journey. Uh, and uh, Barnabas is like, yeah, I'm, I'm in, let's go. And Barnabas, again, wants to bring his nephew Mark with him. And, and Paul put his foot down. He's like, no, I don't want to bring that guy. He, he left me sick and abandoned us. We're running home to mama. I don't, want to bring, I don't want him to come. And so they had this huge contention, this huge division that took place between these two guys. As a matter of fact, the, the contention was so sharp that uh, we, we see that, that Mark uh, went with, with Barnabas uh, back to the island of Cyprus, and Paul took Silas and later Timothy, and uh, Paul went on his way and ended up going into Macedonia. But later on, and I, don't you just, look, by the way, just as, a, as an aside, don't you just love that about the Bible? The Bible doesn't gloss anything over. I mean, here you've got the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament that's sitting in your lap, uh, and the Bible doesn't gloss over the fact that, that he had some interpersonal problems that he had a fight, that he and Barnabas, this guy, I mean, how can you have a fight with the son of encouragement? I mean, it's kind of a hard thing to do, right? And yet they had this fight, they had this falling out, and the Bible records the whole thing for us. Doesn't, doesn't gloss over, doesn't, doesn't make it all nice and pretty, it just says they had a bitter contention. And, and I love that because that's reality. And we all go through that in our Christian walk where we have, we have contentions, we have fights, we have disagreements. And, and of course, we're called to work through those uh, and, and to, to be the body of Christ. Jesus' high priestly prayer uh, to the Father was, was, Father, I pray that they are one even as you and I are one. And so it's not the heart of the Lord that we would be divided, but it does happen. And it's, and it's something that we should take note of. Listen, divisions happen. We need to work through those divisions, and, and, and God will get the glory through that. We see in this case, they have this bitter contention, but what Satan intends for evil, God works together for good. And so now instead of having uh, this group of guys going into one location, now you have two groups of guys going into two locations. This is uh, the math of the Bible, this exponential growth 
that we see where God works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And so this is Barnabas working in Mark's life to encourage him and to bring this guy along. We're going to come back to that point because it's a very significant point in the development of people in the body of Christ that we need to bear with people and encourage people and, and to spur them on towards love and good deeds, as the Bible says. So... Uh, in this work of reconciliation there, we also see uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, at the end of verse 11, uh, it says, uh, Paul said, get Mark and bring him with you for he's useful to me for the ministry. And so scripture records that even though at one time Paul is saying, Mark's worthless, I don't want to bring him with me, he bailed on me. Ultimately, Mark would, would prove himself through the, the forbearance of, of, uh, of his uncle Barnabas working in his life. And ultimately, he would come to the place where the Apostle Paul would say, Hey, Mark's useful to me. Bring him with me when you come there at the end of Paul's life. Mark was a young man when Jesus was crucified. He was probably about 12 years old. Uh, and being this 12-year-old kid there in his mom's house where the early church was meeting, he was mentored by many of the apostles. Another very important point that we're going to come back to. Um, Peter called Mark his son in the faith. And we know that uh, Mark served with Peter uh, extensively. In fact, Mark was Peter's companion through much of Peter's ministry. So much so, in fact, that most commentators agree that the gospel of Mark comes from Peter's accounts of Jesus, given the fact that uh, Mark was only about 12 years old when, when Jesus uh, was there. Um, and so the gospel of Mark could just as easily be called the gospel of Peter. Uh, only one part in this gospel account seems to be written from personal experience of Mark. Um, uh, many commentators think that uh, that personal experience is reflected in Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52. Um, we'll get there eventually, but there's a story there about a certain young man, uh, the text puts it, in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, where, you know, this, this, this young man followed Jesus. None of the other gospels record this account, but Mark's gospel records this certain young man who went into the Garden of Gethsemane and was there uh, just, you know, spying, scoping out what was going on with Jesus and his disciples. And as the, the guards rushed in to arrest Jesus, uh, tells us that they grabbed this young man and that he, he wriggled out of the guy's grasp and he was wearing a robe and, and the guy was left holding, the, holding this young man's robe and the young man ran away naked. Uh, and most commentators think that's, that's Mark talking about himself as he snuck away there in the middle of the night uh, to go, hey, Jesus is going, I'm going to follow him. What are they doing? Uh, and uh, getting, getting there in the garden to see uh, what was going on, having this firsthand account uh, of what was happening. Um, and so otherwise, other than, than this, 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 these two verses in Mark chapter 14, the book of Mark is really written from the Apostle Peter's perspective. In fact, when you consider the Apostle Peter's influence on the book of Mark, it's no wonder that the influence of this book is on service because that's kind of Peter. He was an action kind of guy, right? I mean, we, we think about Peter, uh, Jesus walking on the water. Hey, Jesus, bid me to come to you. If that's you, I want to come. And Jesus, Peter jumping out of the bo boat and walking to him or, you know, hacking off Malchus's ear there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter with his sword ready to fight, ready for action, or, you know, when he and John ran to the tomb, uh, John's gospel makes a point of saying that John beat him to the tomb, uh, but that Peter then, you know, John's being all reverent, kind of standing at the, at the 
tomb door, and, and Peter just pushes him out of the way, just barges right in. And this is Peter, and he's just that kind of a guy. Uh, he was a man of action. And so I think it's only fitting that the account of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark with Peter's influence uh, would be one that would emphasize uh, works and action, because that's certainly uh, who uh, Peter was. Um, in fact, the key verse in the Gospel of Mark, it's found in, in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We'll put it up on the screen for you. It says there that, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the key uh, to this book. And this defines what Mark calls in chapter 1 here where we're at, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the gospel of Christ in a nutshell, this verse, that Jesus Christ came to serve, uh, uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The dictionary defines ransom as something that is paid to obtain the freedom of someone who is held in captivity. Something that's paid to obtain the freedom of somebody who's held in captivity. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, as you read through Romans chapter 6, that all of us are slaves to sin. Uh, we're held in bondage. We're held in captivity. We are slaves to sin. The Bible tells us there in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. And it goes on to explain that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the prophet Hosea, Matthew, Mark, and Timothy, they all testify that Jesus paid the price for our sin. And these men all use this word ransom. This very unique word that Jesus came to ransom you and he came to ransom me from our bondage of sin. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's what gospel means. Gospel means good news. And it is indeed good news that Jesus Christ has come to save. He's come to seek and save that which is lost. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you and for me. Now, there's two parts to the gospel. There's God's part and there's our part. I heard once of, of an evangelist who was preaching the message of God's grace and a guy came up to him and he told him, look, you left out, you left out man's part. And the guy said, uh, oh, I'm sorry, you're right, I did leave out man's part. My part was running like crazy away from God and God's part was chasing after me until he could save me. Uh, and that's true. In terms of the work of our salvation, it's entirely a work of God. There's nothing that you can do to earn a right standing with God. Your right standing with God comes on the day that you recognize that there's nothing good that dwells in you. That, that you are separated from God by your sin. And that there is a huge gulf between you and the Lord. There's nothing that you can do to be reconciled to Him. There's nothing that you can do to be made right with Him. I once heard Pastor Chuck explaining our sin problem this way. He said, you get on a boat in San Pedro and you start heading over to Catalina and halfway across the boat goes down. And he said, you know, uh, some of the people on the boat uh, can swim. Some can't. And of those that can swim, some can swim better than others. And so you got a group of people, the boat goes down, then goes down so quickly, nobody gets a life vest. Those that can't swim, whoop, they go down, uh, they're done. Then, you know, people start swimming, and they're halfway across, so like, which way am I going to go? Am I going to go back? Am I going to go to the island? Whichever direction they choose, you know, it's 26 miles, so 13 miles of swimming, right? And he says, you know, some people, 
they're going to get one or two miles before they run out of gas. They're weak swimmers. They go down. Whoop, it's done for them. And then in the group, there might be just this great swimmer, and he's swimming, he's swimming, he's swimming. He gets a half a mile off the pier there at Avalon. You know, he, he, can, he can smell the popcorn, but he runs out of gas and he goes down. What's the difference between the guy that ran out of gas a half mile off the pier at Avalon and the guy that went down right away that didn't know how to swim? The, the difference is nothing. They both went down, they both fell short. And that's the picture of you and me in our own efforts trying to reach God. We can't. There's not enough good in you. Uh, the, the Bible says you're, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're separated from God. And the wages of our sin is death. There's nothing that you can do to be made right with God. The Bible lays out the standard there uh, very clearly. Uh, the, 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 God gives his law. He says, this is my holy righteous standard. And the Bible makes it clear that the reason God gave us his law was to show us our need for Jesus Christ. Because God says, there's my standard, keep it. And he's just waiting for us to say, I can't keep that standard. I fall short. And God says, good, now you know you need a savior. Let me introduce you to my son. That was his plan all along. Jesus was not plan B, he was plan A. From the beginning, God started by giving us his word, said, this is my standard, keep it. Oh, you can't keep it? Here's your savior. And, and so that's the whole point of, uh, of, of this, this gospel message. It's to show you, it's to show me that we have a need for salvation. Having received your salvation, if you have, have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, and I pray that you have, and at the close of this message, if you haven't, I'm going to give you an invitation to receive him. Because the Bible says, to all who call upon his name, they will be saved you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, if you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. You can receive the free gift of salvation that, that the Lord offers to you. And I want to make sure that each one of you have that opportunity today before we close. But having said that, if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, now you have a part. You don't have a part to play in salvation. Your only part in salvation is to surrender and to confess and to admit, I need a Savior, Jesus, I believe. And your salvation is, is, is done. The work has been accomplished by Jesus. Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, he said, it is finished. He paid the full penalty for your sin. But having been saved, you have a part. There is a part to play. In John's gospel, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and he did so to teach them about their part. Listen to what, to what Jesus said in John chapter 13. Uh, again, we'll put it on the screens for you. Jesus said to his disciples, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, uh, for so I am. If I then, Jesus said, Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Along the same lines, James uh, chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 says this, that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. As I said, we pray this every week. One of my favorite scriptures. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. 
For when he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was, but when but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now that word doer is a very interesting work. In the Greek, it's poiete. And literally what it means is this, a maker, a producer, an author. Now, that's not to say that we are a maker, a a producer, and an author of some new revelation from God. We have God's complete revelation here in, in his book. But what this does mean is that as we respond obediently to the gospel, that we live the gospel out in our lives, we become a maker, a producer, an author of the work that God desires to do uniquely through us. It's been said this, You're writing the gospel, a chapter each day. By the things that you do, by the words that you say, people read what you write, whether it's faithful or whether it's true. And the question is, Christian, what is the gospel according to what you do? That's the the trick, isn't it? We have to live our faith out in obedience to the Lord. And as we do that, we become a maker, a producer, an author of the things that God wants to do in our life. To quote Lawn Chair Larry, you just can't sit there, right? You just can't sit there. As a Christian, you have to get engaged. You have to serve the Lord. We've been made for a purpose. Uh, and the greatest purpose of life is that we should know Jesus and that we should live out our faith, making, producer, producing, and authoring amazing things that are consistent with our faith, right? This is what the gospel teaches. Now, what stood out to me this week as I considered this, and as I prayed through just this first section, and, uh, and I'm asking the Lord, okay, God, what is it <laughs> about this guy, Mark, that uniquely prepared him to be used by you to write your gospel? Because think about that. You know, I, sh- I, I share that, you know, the cute little poem, hey, look, you're writing the gospel, a chapter each day, right, by the things that you do and the words that you say. And, and, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, that's true. I mean, we are supposed to live out the gospel for people to see. But here this kid, Mark, he got to be used by God to, to, by the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through this fellowship with one of the apostles, the apostle Peter. He got to actually write the gospel. God doing this amazing work in him and this amazing work through him. And if we learn nothing through the 14 months we spent in the book of Acts, we learned that God wants to continue to do his work in you. And he wants to continue to do his work in me. In all, you know, the Acts opening up, in all that Jesus began to do and to teach, the inference is he continues to do and to teach through you and through me. And so what I'd like to do here is as we bring the message to a close, what I'd like to do is to focus us on what were, the, what were the, the three main components in Mark's life that uniquely prepared him to serve God and to be used so radically by God. And my hope is, is that we can take some, some lessons from this and we can apply them in our lives as the Spirit would lead. So three points of application to meditate on this, uh, on this week. First point, Mark was raised in a home that was dedicated to Jesus Christ. 
That's the first thing that stands out to me as I kind of consider uh, this, whole, this whole thing. What, what is it about Mark? Well, he was raised in a home that was dedicated to Christ. Notice I word, use the word home. I don't use the word house. It's been said that a house is what you live in, but a home is what you make it, right? And Mark's home was dedicated to Christ. Mary made her home a place for prayer meetings, a place for Bible studies, and obviously it had a huge impact on her son. Let me ask you the question, the obvious question. What's your home dedicated to? What is your home dedicated to? And I have a few questions for you to answer as you consider that. Because immediately we want to say, oh, well, our home's dedicated to Jesus, right? And I want to be able to answer, well, my home is dedicated to Christ. Is it really? Is it really? Answer these questions. What's in your refrigerator? What's in your cupboards? What's on your computer? What's on your television? What do you TiVo? What movies do you rent? What pay-per-view movies do you purchase? What's on your bookshelves? Here's a question for you. What's on your calendar? What's in your checkbook? Where do you pray and read the Bible in your home? If you answer to that question, wait a minute, where do I pray and read the Bible? I don't know, I don't have a specific place. There might be a problem there. Again, what do you spend your money on? All of these things are little clues in our lives to be able to, for us to answer the question, what is my home dedicated to? I can think of a very famous Old Testament scripture, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And I think that uh, if we would desire that we or our children would be those that would be used radically by God to do a, a, an incredible work. And clearly the, the canon of Scripture is closed. We're not going to be used by God to write any new books of the Bible. But we can be used dramatically by God to live out the truths of His Word and write the Gospel on the tablets of people's hearts. God can use us to impact men and women in ways that we can never imagine. I heard someone last night telling me a story <coughs> about a member of our church and, the, and, and these two members were talking and one of them said to the other that had they never come to, to our church that they, their life would be different. They wouldn't be walking with the Lord the way that they are now. Now, that's, that's not to say that this is the only game in town. There are many godly churches where the Holy Spirit's doing the work. But for me, that was just this incredible encouragement because I know what it took to start this church. I know that the sacrifices that were required, but not just by myself, by many people to, to start this work. And to hear someone saying, this has had a profound impact on my life, it's changed my life, made me say, we're on the right track. We need to have our homes be those places that are so dedicated to Jesus Christ that he can do a work in and through our lives. So what is your home dedicated to? Next question. <clears throat> Next observation. Not only was Mark raised in a home that was dedicated to Jesus, but Mark was mentored by godly men. Mark was mentored by godly men. 
You see, because their home was dedicated to Christ, it became a church meeting place. And accordingly, it was filled with godly men and women. The disciples were hanging out there. The, all the new believers in the, in the church, as the church was growing, were hanging out there at the church. And these godly men and women, they had a profound impact on, on Mark. Uh, we know we've discussed the impact that Barnabas had on Mark, and, and Mark there spending so much of his time with Peter in his ministry, uh, you know, the, his direct influence in his life was what directly influenced him to, to be used by the Lord to write uh, the gospel according to Mark. And so there's, there's this impact it can have. And again, uh, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15.33, uh, the scripture there says that do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. And you know, I, I know this firsthand that I have seen, there are those people, going back to our first point, whose homes are not dedicated to the Lord. And as a consequence, the people that are coming into that house and the traffic that's going through that house is not those of a godly character. And so there's this, this aspect, 1 Corinthians 15, that's playing out that evil company corrupts good habits. But if you dedicate your home to be a place of the Lord, and if you focus on filling your lives with those people that are of a godly character and caliber, then what's going to happen is they're going to have an influence on your life, and they're going to have an influence on your children's life. And so <clears throat> it's been said that, that each one of us, should have those type of relationships in our lives where we've got a Paul in our life, somebody who's more mature in the faith than us, and we've got a Timothy in our life, somebody who's, who's less mature in the faith. And, and this constant relationship on either side keeps us being mentored and being filled, and it gives us someone to mentor ourselves, someone to pour our lives into. I want to ask you the question, who is mentoring you? Who's mentoring your children? Important questions. I, I was reading in USA Today this week. There was, there was a poll. It, was, it didn't go out this week, but this is, I was reading it online. There was a USA Today poll, and they asked uh, uh, several hundred teenagers this question, where do you turn in a time of crisis? Where do you think mothers came up on that list? 31st. Moms came up 31st on the list. Fathers came up 48th on the list. Where do you turn in a time of crisis? And hundreds of teenagers had their parents so far down on the list, do you think they had any meaningful influence in mentoring their life? Really scary statistics. We have the opportunity to mentor others, and we have the opportunity ourselves to be mentored. And it's a very important point uh, of application in our lives. This, I would tell you, this is the, one of the, well, it's probably the top three things that will influence your life as a Christian and that will influence other people's lives as well. The degree to which you are, you are personally being mentored and the degree to which you are mentoring others. I was incredibly blessed, and, and, and my point here is to say how important mentoring is and how, um, how amazing it can be. You have no idea the impact that you can have on somebody through a mentoring relationship. My daughter, Caitlin, was going to, to, uh, to college in Seattle, and she called me up one day, and she said, Hey, listen, uh, Zach's up here, and, and we had known that. Zach you know, was, was uh, you know, a friend of the, of the family, and... Um, 
you know, he, he uh, stayed at our house several times when Telecast was playing down here and whatnot. And, um, and so Caitlin now going to school up there, he's living in Seattle and, and, you know, they've got this on again, off again, kind of friendship sort of deal. And Zach's just going through, you know, a time of personal crisis in his life. And, and, uh, Caitlin says to him, uh, Hey, you, you should call my dad and talk to him. And, um, okay, well, she said, my dad's the wisest man I know. You should talk to him. <laughs> Couldn't resist that. Anyway, but how cool is that in light of that USA Today poll to have your daughter say, my dad's a wise man. You should call and talk to him. And, and I love saying that, Kiki. Um, and so, uh, so Zach calls me. And Zach and I have this profound privilege of having this discipleship relationship. Uh, he would call me every week on a particular day at a particular time. And, and I would disciple him. And uh, he, he ends up, he's, go, he's in this, this, this crossroads in his life, and we just happen to be doing this unique thing at the church where I'm like, hey, you know, we're starting a magazine, and, and I can't promise you anything, but I can give you a summer internship, and you can come down, you can stay at my house for free. Uh, and uh, so why don't you come down? And so he comes down, he ends up moving in, he ends up staying for, for months and months, and we, we have this, this great discipleship relationship. And of course, you know, all of you that know my daughter, Caitlin, you know she ended up marrying Zach, which is an, it's a miracle because they fought like cats and dogs. They fought like brother and sister, man. And, uh, and then one day, Zach gets into the car and he, he says to me, I'm in love with Caitlin. And I started laughing because we could totally see the tension. And I'm like, yeah, it's time for you to move out. <laughs> but the cool thing is in that, in that process, I mean, how, just imagine that. God was so gracious to me that I got to, to mentor my son-in-law. And I've been praying for my daughter's husbands since they were little girls been asking the Lord to give my daughters godly men as husbands, and God answered that prayer in a way I never could have imagined. I got to disciple her husband for months and months, and, and he did it in such a way it was completely unencumbered because they, they were barely friends, <laughs> fighting like cats and dogs. There was no relationship there. It was this pure discipleship relationship. Here's the deal, guys. You have no idea what God wants to do through you. And you know, the thing is, Right now, I've got another young man living in my home. Now, I've married off all my daughters, so, so that's done. But I've got another young man that's living in my home now, and I love him like a son. And this is a man whose mom had called me uh, years and years ago. And I answered the phone there in my office. His mom's on the phone. She says, look, I know, Pastor Ted, that you're a busy guy and that you, you, you must get calls like this all the time. But my son needs a father. And uh, I know that I can't believe I'm laying this on you, but I'm desperate. My son needs a father. And I'm like, okay, this is, what, this is my ministry. This is what God's called me to. And so I'm ministering to this kid. I'm at my oldest daughter's wedding, having this conversation with her, uh, with, with, because now you know, we've invited her and their family friend, and they're at the wedding. And she just privately mentions to me, my son could really use some more of your time. Now, this is a brilliant kid. I mean, he just graduated Pepperdine. Uh, he's, he's, he's a great kid. Uh, and yet she, again, just saying, hey, my son needs some of your time. And so I end up, I strike up a conversation with him. Hey, bro, what's going on in your life? Uh, well, come to find out, he's at a crossroads in his life. So what'd I say? You know what? I got a spare room at my house. You want to move in for a few months? He's living with us right now. 
And the thing is, is that I, I'm just challenging you to be open to those that God would have you to mentor. You have no idea the difference that you can make in somebody's life. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that you should have somebody move into your house. God's given me, it seems, a unique ministry in this regard. But here's what I am saying, and this is not a selfish plug, trust me. You can serve in our children's ministry. And you know, they're desperate right now for volunteers. We have people, the church just celebrated its one-year anniversary, and we have the same people that have been laboring in and out in our children. We have some people that are there both services because we don't have enough people working in the children's ministry. And we are bringing, we're, we're leading kids to the Lord on a regular basis in the children's ministry. You have an opportunity to impact a child's life. And I'm not asking you, I joked last week about having pricking your finger and having you sign in blood when you volunteer for the children's ministry. We're not, we're not asking you for blood. We're just asking you to pour your life into the life of a child. You have an opportunity today. Walking in, you don't have to wonder, well, I wonder who I can mentor. You can mentor a child right now. You know, one weekend a month, for crying out loud. You can do one service a month. I don't care. We, we desperately need your help. But more than that, God desperately wants to use you. You have the opportunity to mentor people all around you. By the same token, you yourself need to be mentored. I have the, the great privilege right now, I'm leading a, a brother through one-on-one discipleship, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to do that. But all of us should be looking for those opportunities to meet with those godly men and women in our lives that we, that we can receive from, that, that can pour their lives into us, that can spur us on towards love and good deeds, which is what we require. Well, the third thing I want you to notice in Mark's life that uniquely prepared him, and I think that we can take a lesson from, is that Mark's mentors didn't give up on him. And we know the story of Mark uh, with uh, Paul and Barnabas, and he failed. He really did. He bailed on him right in the middle of, of, a, of a missionary trip, and, and Mark failed, and he ran home to Mama. And there's going to be times in your life when you fail. And there's going to be times in your life when the people who you've been pouring your life into will fail you. And it can be so disheartening and so discouraging. But I'm just encouraged by the fact that Barnabas never gave up on Mark. He never gave up on him. Um, I, I heard the story of a guy in a supermarket. He's got this, this young child, and the, the kid is just freaking, just melting down. Ah, you know, as they're walking through the, the thing. And they, as they're walking along, the guy's saying, be calm, George. Come on, George. You're all right, man. Come on, George. You can do it. It's all right, buddy. You can do it. And this woman walked up to him. She says, oh, it's so beautiful to hear you talking to little George like that. He said, lady, I'm George. <laughs> and, you know, people will let us down and we can get frustrated. The thing is, we need not to give up on those that we've been called to minister to. And here in the body of Christ, folks, let me tell you, people, they're going to let you down. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, they're going to let you down. And, and our temptation is to write them off, to tell them off, to write them off, I'm done with you. No, the Lord wants us to, to be reconciled, to work through the issues that Satan wants to cause, to bring division and, 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 and fights and, and, and disruption in our lives. Now, the Lord wants us to work through these difficulties. And he wants us not to give up on each other. As I said earlier, Jesus' high priestly prayer was, Father, I pray that they are one, even as you and I are one. 
And so today I want you to take these, these lessons to heart from Mark's life. I realize we only covered one verse and hopefully next week we'll go through a little bit more than that. But I want you to take to heart, look, God used this man in an, in an incredible way. And, and we're learning this great work that God has done for us. And, and for better or for worse, God has sovereignly dictated that he will do his work on the earth now through sinful men and women. You play a part in that and so do I. And so I pray today as we leave, as we go forward, as we put feet on our faith and we, and we take this message to heart, God would show us, Lord, how can my home be a godly home? Lord, how can mentorship be played out in my life, through my life? How, Lord, am I being mentored? Who, Lord, would you have me to mentor? And Lord, how can I be encouraged not to give up? Amen.